Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. I would like to make one more <clears throat> quick announcement. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a one-day men's retreat here last year, and it was really successful, and we opened it up to all our sister churches here in the Bay Area, and I think we had about 15 different churches represented total, uh, a one-day men's conference. And we had a, a speaker come out from Bangor, Maine, Pastor Ken Graves. Such a blessing. Everything was great from beginning to end. And I've talked to a number of gentlemen since then as I bump into other pastors and men from those churches. And they were really blessed. And they were hoping that we were going to do this again. And so we kind of thought we would gear up and start looking towards doing another one later this year in September. So just kind of praying through, considering who could be a guest speaker, what the theme would be, uh, who would lead worship, so on and so forth. And all that to say, it, it certainly comes at a cost to us, and so we, we charge per person to come to the event, but we want to keep it as minimal as possible. And so with that, if there's anybody here in the church who feels led like you would want to support uh, something like that, if you would want to come alongside and partner with us financially, so that we can keep the cost down to a minimum for the, for the men around the Bay Area that, that come out to this, uh, we, would, we would love to do that. So if you have any questions, what that may look like, how you, can, how you can do that, please feel free to talk to myself, Pastor Bill, or Matt Scott, if you would raise your hand. He is the men's ministry leader here. He and his wife, really, they do all the legwork for that. And so um, if that's something that interests you at all, if you have any questions, you could uh, speak with them as well. All right, well, let's pray, and then we will dig in. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that truly it is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light to our path. And we, uh, we, want, to, we want to know You, God. We want to see You in Your Word. We want to uh, be able to better see uh, where we are going in our lives by Your Word. So, Father, I pray that You would speak to each and every one of us in here, God, as we are walking through life, as we are doing this thing called life. I pray that You would please show us that You would lead us by Your Word, by Your Spirit. I pray, Lord, as we have come here now to, to seek Your face, that You would meet with us. I pray that You would bless God all the folks that came out today I pray that you would reward that by revealing yourself to them in a in a greater way through your word above all father be honored in Jesus name amen okay so as I said we are in Acts chapter 13 Paul the apostle Paul becomes the major player in the book from this point forward and up to this point it's been predominantly Peter but Peter kind of disappears at this point. We'll see him again for a very short period in chapter 15. Also in this chapter, Saul becomes Paul. And I'm so grateful for that because it gets really confusing. And as I, I think I had mentioned last time, Saul was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so that was why he was called Saul. But he's also a Roman citizen. And so as he launches out into his ministry to the Gentiles, he goes by Paul. That would kind of be a, a Gentile name. And so it works out for him. Now, 
We saw him in chapter 9, the dramatic story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And that was a pretty significant event. But between that point to this point, he's been rather obscure. We've seen him once or twice, not a whole lot uh, to be said about him. And there was probably a period of about 14 years approximately from the time that he was converted on the road to Damascus until now when he launches off on what is his first missionary journey. And so uh, he's been relatively obscure at this point, but now he's going to break forth on the scene. And I, I titled this message, Just Go For It, because that's what we see happen with, with Paul now. God calls him. God has saved him. He has called him. He has equipped him. And now he's going to launch out and he is going to go for it. And we're going to get to see Paul in action. That's really what this boils down to. As we watch Paul go, he's going to launch out. He's going to be sent by the church. And he's going to uh, preach the gospel. And we're going to get to see a side of Paul that we haven't seen up to this point. And truly, he is an amazing man, a highly gifted man, a very godly, spirit-filled man. And we're going to see him in action today. And so I think that was kind of the word... For me and for all of us, I would say as we look at this, as Paul was raised up, he was equipped, and he was sent out, and he didn't hold back one bit at all. He went for it, knowing the hardship that he was going to encounter. Because God told Ananias, if you'll recall, to tell Saul, I must show him the things that he will suffer. And so Paul, being fully aware of this, didn't hold back not even a little bit. He went for it with all of his might. And so we're going to see what that looks like today as we dig into this. So I mentioned this is his first missionary journey. There are three. There are three missionary journeys that are recorded for us in the book of Acts with Paul. And we believe that he had a fourth journey that he went on uh, that would have happened after the events that are recorded in this book. And then he would have died at that point. He would be arrested. And we believe that he ultimately had his, his head uh, cut off under Caesar Nero. I believe it is. And that was the, the end of, of his race. And so now we're going to see him launch out into his first missionary journey. So, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So as I had mentioned before, they are here at the, the church in Antioch. This is up outside the boundaries of Israel. Jerusalem was the mother church. That was where it all began, and that was where uh, they initially launched out from. But Antioch seems to become somewhat of the, uh, the missionary headquarters church. Every time people launch out, every time Paul in particular launches out, he comes back out from this church. He goes around through all the different areas, plants churches, visits churches that he had already planted. He goes back to Antioch, and then he launches out. Again, so that is where they are currently at at the moment. And here, here in a, a little bit, I'll pull up a map and, and just kind of refresh you guys on all of that. But as they're there in Antioch, we're told that they are ministering to the Lord and they're fasting. And I always really liked that. I don't know, um, 
Ministering uh, simply means to serve. Simply means to serve, right? And so when you call someone a minister, what you're saying is they are a servant. I feel like in some ways the, the name has lost that meaning. Uh, sometimes when people hear minister, they tend to think that's a, a title to be revered and feared. Oh, he's a minister. But all it simply means is he's a servant. Um, and I love, you know, there's the idea of serving the Lord, but I don't often hear ministering to the Lord. That's not a phrase that I often hear. And I've always liked that when I hear that because it, it, um, it just kind of has a different ring, ring to me. You know, like they're, they're just blessing the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're there focusing on the Lord. They're seeking His face. They're being attentive to His, his leading. And it's an it's a Old Testament kind of an idea. Samuel, when he was just a little guy, he was ministering in the temple before the Lord. He was serving. He was taking care of the, the needs of the, the house of God as a, a child and growing up as a young man. But he was just ministering before the Lord. And so... For me, as I think about that, I think about just the idea of living a life, living a life where we are just ministering to the Lord day in and day out. Would you say that is true of you? Uh, you know, they haven't been sent out yet. Sometimes we think about it like this, you know, I'm going to go serve God when I go here, go there and do that, whatever that may be. Whatever it is, is on your heart, whatever kind of vision God has given you. But before that even happened, before they even launched out, they were just ministering to the Lord. They were just worshiping Him. They were seeking His face. They were waiting on Him. It was just a lifestyle of living with the Lord, for the Lord, waiting on the Lord. And they were fasting. They were in a position of, God, we know You want to do something. In the meantime, we're just here at Your feet, seeking Your face, worshiping You, serving You, waiting on You. But God, we're here. We're ready. And I like that. That, that makes me think much about... Uh, when we hear the word waiting, we don't like that very much. I, I think most of us, we want to move. We want to do something. And it's much like waiting on tables. I don't know if you've ever heard that, this analogy, but when someone is waiting, when I'm sitting there eating my, my food and I have a waiter, they're busy. They're not just standing there watching me. They're moving around. They're, they're, they're attentive to my needs. They're checking in on me, but they're, they're serving full on. Uh, but they're there uh, waiting for me as a, as a need arises. And that's kind of the idea of waiting on the Lord. We're just We're busy. We're busy serving Him, caring for other people, worshiping, waiting. And that's what they were doing here. And then finally, God called on them and God sent them out. So we're told here that the Holy Spirit said to separate to me Barnabas and Saul. And I've often wondered, I wonder what that was like. You know, I wonder, what uh, did they hear a voice audibly? Have you ever wondered about that? And as I uh, kind of looked into this a little bit, we, I mean, we don't know, but probably not. We were told that they were there in the presence of prophets and teachers. And I would say that someone spoke a word of prophecy. They were led by the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, thus says the Lord, separate to me Paul and Barnabas and send them out. And that's what they did. And I think that there's some significance to this idea of separate. Separate. Uh, they said, you know, you got these guys that are here with you in this group. They're ministering to me, but now I want you to set them apart and send them out. And that is very important to us as Christians. We are to be separate. 
we are to be separate. We are separated from the world. We are separated to God. But there comes a time when God says, separate yourself and go. Do this thing. Do this thing that I have called you to. And that may look very differently for each one of us in this room. God calls us to go and to serve Him in in very different ways oftentimes. It doesn't look the same. But God says, separate them for I have a work to which I have called them. And I think this is a a very beautiful reality. Just as God had something very special, something very specific for Barnabas and for Paul, He has something very special, very specific and beautiful for all of us in this room. And so God has called us to separate ourselves from the world, separate ourselves to Him, and to go and to do that very beautiful work that He has prepared for us beforehand. Ephesians 2.10 talks about that very thing. And then we're to go for it. Get in the game. Get after it. Whatever that is. Whatever God has placed on your heart. Whatever He has gifted you for. Whatever vision you may have in your mind. Separate yourself and go for it. And that's what we see happen with Saul here. Uh, verse 4 So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Then they also had John as their assistant. Alright, so if I could get the the map up at this time. So as I said, this was... I don't know, can you guys see the the laser pointer from out there? No? No? Okay. Okay. I'm glad to know that. I wish somebody would have told me that. Um, I I had someone come up to me last week and say that. So, all right. Well, I'll try to do what I can to get a better laser and and get this situation set up. But if you look down at the bottom of the map here, this is where it all started. Now up here, I don't know if you can see right there, that's the Antioch where the, the new church headquarters are. So they sail down here to the island of Cyprus, and they're going to be in Paphos. And then they're going to come back up into here in Pamphylia and Pisidia ultimately. And so anyways, for today, that's just all all I will do uh, until we kind of get the the laser thing figured out. So that's, that's where they are launching out to. And we are told at this point that they have John Mark as their assistant. That's significant. John Mark is the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he is Barnabas' nephew. And he launches out with them on this initial missionary journey. We're told that he is an assistant to Saul and to Barnabas. Now, verse 6. No sooner than they are sent and they go, wouldn't you know it, they encounter opposition. And that is something that, uh, that we all face so often. So, verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, of all things that would be his name. Verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Alright, so now here they are at Paphos, and they encounter this uh, Sergius Paulus, who was a, a proconsul. We'll talk 
more about that in a moment. But there's also this guy here named Bar-Jesus, and he is a sorcerer. He's a, a magician. Now, the name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, oddly enough. Um, but he's also called Elemis, and that means magician. And so Luke, the author of uh, the book here, probably would rather call him that than Bar-Jesus. So he makes that distinction there. This guy is very similar to the character in chapter 8. Uh, maybe you remember Simon the Sorcerer. It wasn't too long ago that we talked about that. In your notes, I'll read to you a quote about Simon the Sorcerer. It gives us some insight about this guy in our story today. So, Guzik said the specific wording indicates that Simon was a magi. In the ancient world, there was a class of astronomers and scientists known as magi, but local wizards and sorcerers also took the title. They used it to prey on the ignorance and superstition of the common people. So it's very possible that that's what we have going on here. But this guy is not an ordinary common person. This guy, Sergius Paulus, the one that, uh, that he is um, rendering his services to. Uh, as we're told, he's a, a proconsul. And so what exactly is that? In your notes there... Williams, the commentator, he tells us that all Roman provinces were divided into two classes. There were those that required troops and those that did not. The latter were administered by the Senate and ruled by proconsuls. The former were under the administration of the emperor. So basically, you had two different kinds of uh, provinces. You would have certain areas that were under the, the rule of the Roman armies, the Roman soldiers, and so that belonged to the emperor. And then you would have areas that were not, areas that did not have any uh, troops stationed there. And that was under the rule of the Senate. And the Senate would set in place these proconsuls. Paul Hill here says that the highest ranking official in a Roman senatorial province was a proconsul. So this guy is a really big deal, really big deal. And we're told that he's a very intelligent man. Uh, yet somehow he's, he's dealing with this sorcerer here, this this uh, Magi, possibly. And Bar-Jesus sought to turn him away. Now, this guy wanted to hear from Barnabas and Saul. He wanted to hear what they had to say, but the sorcerer didn't want any part of it. And he was doing everything in his power to try to, to stop that from happening. Now, as I had mentioned earlier, these guys, they really uh, loved the influence that they yielded, the influence that they wielded, I should say, over people. And... This was somebody that he would certainly have a lot of power in that place if he had influence over them. And so obviously he knows if this guy turns to the Lord, he's going to lose all of that. And so he's doing what he can to fight that. And so obviously as soon as Paul is sent out by the Holy Spirit and he's called to this great work, no sooner than he gets started, he encounters opposition. And how many of us in here know what that is like? Um... I could, I'll just say this, if you're encountering opposition, that is a good thing. That is a good sign. If, uh, if the enemy is not trying to uh, stop what, what God is doing in and through you, if the enemy is not trying to challenge and, and disrupt that, that would be something to be concerned about. And so it, it's hard to say that to people that are in the midst of severe struggles, but that is a word of encouragement. When you're really going through it, you're doing something right. You're doing something that the enemy hates. 
And the enemy is trying hard to oppose you and to oppose what God is doing through you. So we see that here. So verse 9, this is where Saul becomes Paul. says, so then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Alright, so Paul's name is, well, his name is now changed from Saul to Paul, and he sees what's going on here. This guy's trying to, to disrupt the work of the Lord, and we're told that Paul looks intently at him. He, he is basically, he turns and looks straight at this guy and sets his gaze on him, and then he sets off with a severe rebuke, and then he strikes the guy blind. That's pretty awesome. And he calls him the son of the devil. One, one commentator, this is in your notes, referring to this, he says that uh, the fact that Paul called in this, it suggests that his magic was assisted by demonic powers. Magic in antiquity was practiced by both pagan and Jewish people with the goals of healing diseases, bringing physical blessings, cursings, or otherwise harming others and guarding against curses and demons. Magicians also claimed to foretell the future. Ancient literature and discovered magical books indicate that magic often involves special incantations, uh, frequently invoking magical names of deities and demons, potions, and the use of magical objects such as amulets, incantations, bowls, or figurines. And so this guy may have been much more than just a, a con artist who was trying to influence the people. He may have really been uh, mixed up in some deep, dark type of stuff. And Paul calls him out. Paul sees what's happening here. He understands that this is more than just um, flesh and blood. This is spiritual. And again, that's something that we have to take note of. We don't war against flesh and blood. Right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't fight with fists and guns and knives. Our weapons are spiritual. We're fighting an invisible enemy. You know, I think about um, marriages when, when spouses are fighting. Sometimes they need to just stop and realize that they are not each other's enemies. And that there is an enemy there that is their common enemy and they need to turn around and set their fight against Him. And your warfare, your weapon is prayer. Amen. Amen. And so, um, Paul saw past what was really happening here. He understood that there was something much more devious, something much more wicked. And that this guy was actually a, a son of the devil. He was working for the devil and he rebuked him in that way and struck him blind. Now, when Sergius saw that, he believed Okay, that, that was all he needed to see. He saw this guy, he saw that the power of, of God, the power of the God that Paul and, and Barnabas was preaching was clearly greater. And he believed. He believed in what Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. But what stuck out to me here was that uh, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That's what he was astonished at. 
You know, he saw, he saw the miracle. He saw what happened and I think that bolstered his faith. But what really amazed him was the teaching of the Lord. The gospel message that Barnabas and Saul proclaimed. That is so awesome. It is something to be amazed by. It is something to be astonished at. And the people were so often astounded by Jesus. They said, we've never heard anything like this before. We've never heard anyone speak like this before. He speaks with authority like no man has ever taught. They were astounded by it. Well, he became a believer, this guy. Truly, he was an intelligent man. And he saw past the nonsense and he saw the truth. God revealed Himself to this man that day and he put his trust in the Lord. Uh, Hughes, here in your notes, he says, uh, Sir William Ramsey reports that inscriptions bearing Sergius Paulus' name have been found on Cyprus, confirming that he was a Christian and that his entire family became Christians. Pretty cool. Alright, well now there's going to be more open doors for Paul. And such is the case in the Christian life. As we're ministering to the Lord, as we're serving Him, as we're just going for it, God opens up doors. Even though there's opposition, ultimately the enemy cannot stop what God wants to do. So verse 13, Now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from there, returned to Jerusalem. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So as I said, now they went from the island of Cyprus, up, uh, Cyprus uh, excuse me, back up to the mainland, but... John Mark went back to Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly what happened at this point, but John Mark left the mission. And evidently Paul takes great offense at this. It doesn't say it right here, but a little later on in the book, they're going to launch out again and Barnabas is going to want to give John Mark another chance. And he says, hey, let's, let's take him with us. And Paul won't do it. And they actually end up splitting. Paul and Barnabas go two different ways a little later on for that very reason. So this is the point in which John Mark took off. He was a, probably a very young guy at this point, and uh, you know uh, we don't really know what the reasons were, but we do know that later on he's restored, and that he becomes a, a real blessing to Paul. Paul really counts on him in ministry later on, years later. Well, they're at the synagogue. This is very typical for, for Paul. Generally, this is what he would do. He'll come into a town and he'll start with the Jews. He'll start in the synagogue. So the synagogue, they would meet on Saturday. That was their Sabbath. And uh, they would come together. They would read from the law. They would read from the prophets. They would uh, recite the Shema. And then they would have someone come up and give a word of exhortation. Generally, they would have different rabbis, uh, different visitors, get up and give a sermon. So they would call on Paul and Barnabas, and that's not uncommon, but as soon as they get up and start talking about Jesus and they figure out what's going on, they would usually try to shut them down or chase them off. It was all good until they got to that point. And so that's pretty much what we see happen here. So Paul is going to take the opportunity. He's going to walk through this open door that has been set before him, and he's going to start where these people are at. These are Jews in a synagogue. The door has been opened for Paul to get up and to share. And so he's going to go to the Old Testament. 
and he's going to work his way all the way through. This is very similar to Stephen. You'll recall earlier in the book when Stephen went all the way back from Abraham forward to show them how they actually had a history of rejecting God all the way from that point all the way up to Christ. And so Paul's going to kind of do the same thing. He doesn't go nearly as in-depth though. And so uh, verse 16 Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So Paul goes all the way back to when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt happens in the book of Exodus. They were there, and then you know the story. Moses comes in, and he leads them out of Egypt, and they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Because the first generation, they had a chance to go in, but they doubted. They sent in the spies. The spies came back with a bad report, and they listened to that, and they did not want to go into the land. And so God said, you're not going to go, but your children will go into the land. So for 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness until that whole generation died off. And then it was their children, it was that generation that went in. So verse 19, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So that second generation went into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua had been Moses' assistant when Moses died. Joshua took over as the commander and he led the children of Israel into the promised land. They overthrew the, uh, overthrew the people there and that became the land of Israel. And it was broken up into the different tribal allotments and that became the national land and territory of Israel. Verse 20 And after that, he gave them judges for about 400 years, 450 years, until Samuel the prophet. So after Joshua took them into the land, and that became the land of Israel, Joshua dies, and for about 450 years, you have the period of the judges. And that is recorded in the Bible, the book of Judges, as a very bizarre book. It's a very dark period of Israel's history. They were a theocracy at that time. That means that they were governed by God. They were not a, d- a democracy. It was just God, His law, and they were to submit to His ordinances. And they would get in a lot of trouble. They would be oppressed by neighboring countries. And so God would raise up leaders. And these were called judges. And these were generally uh, warriors, warlike people that would come in and, and help lead the, the nation to conquer their enemies And things would go well for a while, but then eventually they would turn away from God, fall back into idolatry, and this whole cycle would happen over and over and over again. That was the period of the judges. And it was finally broken with Samuel. Samuel the prophet. So the book of 1 Samuel kind of caps that. And Samuel was a very interesting character. He was a priest and a prophet and a judge. And so we're told here that They were there with judges for about 450 years up until the time of Samuel. And then verse 21, And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So the people were not happy with Samuel. They wanted a king. They wanted to have a king like all the other nations. So they asked for God to give them a king. Now Samuel was very grieved by this. And God said, don't be grieved, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, and they want a king like all the other nations to rule over them instead of me. 
So God gave them what they asked for, and he gave them Saul. And Saul ultimately reigned for 40 years, but we know that, that he was a bad king. He started out really well, but it, it ended really badly for him. So verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. So now Paul's starting to get to the point here a little bit. So Saul the king, that went really bad. So God raised up another king after Saul, and this was King David. He said, this is a man who will, uh, he will be after my heart. You know, and so that, that was David. He was a man after God's own heart. With all of his faults, with all of his failures, and we know that he had some really big ones, really big failures. He, was a, he never worshipped false gods. Like so many of the other kings, they, they would turn and they would worship the, the pagan deities, the pagan gods, the foreign gods. David never did that. He truly was a, a man after God's own heart, even with his faults. And God said it would be through him that he would raise up the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the foretold one. It would be, that's why they would call him the son of David. That was a, a messianic title that was designated for the Christ when he would come. He would be a descendant of David. And so Paul is making this connection now. It is through David that will come, it is through his seed that will come the Savior of Israel, Jesus. And then verse 24 after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So now Paul fast forwards all the way from David the king to John the Baptist. And that kind of... Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner of the, of the Christ. He was prophesied in Malachi. He would be the one that would go before the Messiah. And that was his ministry. His whole job was to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Lord. You know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, I must decrease, He must increase. That was John's whole ministry, ultimately, was to pre prepare the way as the forerunner. And he did just that. Now... He prepares the way Jesus comes on the scene, but Jesus is rejected. Verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. So Jesus came, according to Paul, but He was rejected according to the prophets. That's what the prophets said would happen. And He's saying even though they read the prophets, even though they knew the prophets, they missed it and they fulfilled the prophets by condemning Christ. So they rejected Him, they condemned Him. Now Paul's going to really start to get into the Gospel at this point. He went all the way back to the Egyptian bondage and worked his way forward to John the Baptist. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus was rejected according to the Scriptures. And now he's going to really get into the heart of the Gospel message here. So verse 28, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. 
And when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. So even though Jesus was innocent, he was rejected by his people, the people that he came to save. They rejected him, they handed him over to Pilate. And even though Pilate declared his innocence, they twisted Pilate's arm and Pilate uh, gave in to their demands and handed Jesus over to be crucified. So Jesus was rejected by the people that he came to save. He was crucified. All of this in accordance with what had been written. The Scriptures had said that He would come, that He would be rejected, that He would suffer, that He would die. We're told that He was laid in a tomb, Paul said. He was laid in a tomb. He was raised from the dead. And He was seen for many days by many witnesses. And He said, And we declare to you the glad tidings, the good news. And that is the Gospel that Jesus came. The Son of God came. And that He lived among us. He lived among His people. And that He died the death of the wicked. The death that He did not deserve. He was laid in a tomb. On the third day, He rose again from the grave. And He was victorious over death, over sin, over all of that. And this was the good news. You know, the Gospel is good news. The Gospel should be good news. Sometimes the gospel people preach is not very good news. It doesn't sound like good news. But we have great news. God so loved the world. It was His desire that none should perish. But that we would come to have everlasting life. He sent His Son. We were condemned. We were dead in our sins. But God made a way for us to know Him. And for us to live with Him. And to walk with Him. And because of this this new life that is ours in Christ Jesus, God has a purpose for our lives. We're not just a saved soul with a wasted life. God has a true purpose for us, just like He had a purpose for Saul. He saved Saul because he was going to be a chosen vessel for His glory. We don't just get saved and then zapped up to heaven. God saves us and then God uses us for His glory. Isn't that wonderful? And that is good news. That is great news. I remember thinking I wasted so much of my life. And I did. I hurt so many people and burned so many bridges and so many disastrous relationships. But I knew that I could be forgiven and that God could use me and that He would use me. And for the rest of my life, I wanted to give back. I wanted to be used by God to bless people, to love and serve people. And that is what God is in the business of doing. And so they're declaring this good news. Paul is declaring this good news. Verse 33, he says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That is Psalm 2, verse 7. This was a messianic prophecy speaking of the incarnation when God says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Speaking of the time when Christ would take on flesh. Verse 34, And that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
speaking to the fact that Jesus indeed was the son of David. He was of the seed of David. He was the, the lineage of David. Isaiah 55.3, that is quoting from. And then verse 35 here, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That is Psalm 16.10. And Paul is going to go on to interpret that for us in verse 36. For David after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Paul is making the point. David said in the psalm there that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so what Paul is saying is, is that David is dead and in the ground and he is decayed. His body has seen corruption. So clearly... David was speaking prophetically of someone greater, the greater David. And he was speaking of the Messiah, and it was fulfilled in Christ because though Jesus died and was laid in a tomb, his body didn't see corruption, he didn't decay, his body was raised again from the dead. And so that was literally fulfilled, Psalm 16, literally fulfilled in Christ. And Paul is connecting the dots for them. The one that you've been reading about, the one that you've been seeing in all of the Scriptures, this is the Christ, this is Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So it just keeps getting better and better. Through Christ comes the forgiveness of sins. Because our sins have been judged on the cross. God is a judge. And He cannot let sin go unpunished. That would be unjust. But God judged sin on the cross, on His Son. He crushed His Son. My sin, your sin, for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, have been judged on Jesus at the cross. And now we have forgiveness of sins. I'm no longer an enemy of God I'm no longer a child of the devil. I am a son of the living God. I am a child of God. I have received forgiveness. And I'll never forget when my sins were washed away. That's a wonderful, wonderful feeling, experience. When you no longer stand condemned. Because I remember what it was like when I stood condemned. I remember what it was like when I was under the weight of my sin and I knew what awaited me if I should die. But I also remember the day that I put my trust in Christ and my sins were forgiven me. And I thank God that His mercies are new every single day. Amen. Through Christ comes justification. It's not as though uh, justification is to say declared righteous. As though you never sinned. It's not that God just says, okay, I forgive you. He says, you are righteous. I declare you clean. Period. It is a legal term. Justified. We've been forgiven. We've been justified. And Paul makes the point, these things could not be accomplished through the law. Praise God that God made a way because the law cannot save you. You understand that? Keeping the rules cannot save you. If you think that you're okay with God because you're a good person or because you're doing X, Y, and Z or because you believe the Ten Commandments or because you've done some charitable deed, that will not save you. The purpose of the law was to show us that we can't keep the law. The purpose of the law was to show us that we are law breakers. And it's as simple as that. 
So Paul's making the point here, forgiveness and justification comes through Christ because all the law does is condemn you. So he gives the warning, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. You can let it go down. I don't mind the cross being up there. Let the cross show. So Paul warns them. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5. And he says, be warned. I'm going to read it to you again. Verse 41. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Watch out for unbelief. Beware. Paul has come into their town and he's come with the message, the message of salvation. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5 there. And he says, do not reject God's salvation. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no other way. And Paul has come with the good news. Paul has come with the glad tidings. And he warns them again from the Word, do not reject this. Alright, so now we're going to see the reaction of the people. There's spiritual hunger. So when the Jews went out, of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. The Gentiles wanted more. They were hungry. They were excited at this message. This was wonderful for them and they wanted to hear more. Even the Jews and the devout proselytes came to faith. That would be those who had converted to Judaism. They were all the way in. They had gone through all the ceremonial rites and they had become Jews. They were devout proselytes. They even loved what they were hearing. But ultimately, there would be envy. Verse 44, On the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Almost the whole city came out the next week to hear this. But there was more opposition. The Jews saw this and they were jealous. They tried to oppose it theologically. They tried to argue with them biblically. But we know that really what was going on here is they were envious. They saw the crowds that were being drawn by the gospel message and they tried to oppose that. Uh, uh, verse 48 here. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So the Gentiles rejoiced at the message and they glorified the word of the Lord. And we are told many believed on the word. Many believed. And the word continued to spread through all the region. Verse 50, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city 
raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they, took, uh, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, the Jews provoked a mob to persecute the disciples and to expel them from the region, to, to chase them off. And we're told that they, they shook the dust off of their feet at the Jews. Now this is interesting, because this was something that the Jews would often do to the Gentiles. When they would leave Gentile territory, if they had to go through there, they would, when they got to the edge of the land, they would kick the dust off of their feet so not to bring Gentile dust into Jewish territory. That was the way that they, they looked at, at these folks. And so they turned it around on them, and they actually shook the dust off their feet as a judgment, basically speaking of judgment against the Jews for their willful rejection against the gospel message. There's some quotes there in your notes that you can look at, uh, some kind of insightful stuff there. We won't go there today. We'll kind of close at this point. But I guess as I was just thinking through this and trying to figure out, you know, what, what would be the word? You know, what we see in this chapter more than anything is just the, the gospel message going forward. People are receiving it. Paul is going for it with all of his might. He gives this beautiful presentation. He goes so in-depth with the message. But Paul gets after it. He goes for it. God called him. God prepared him, equipped him. God separated him. And God sent him out. And Paul went after it with all of his might. So that's my word for you guys as we close today. Be praying. Are you going for it in your life? Uh, are you, are you uh, in the game, so to speak? Are you a, a sideline Christian? Are you doing what God has called you to do and doing it with all of your might? Father, we love You and thank You, God, for Your words. Truly, they are life and they are light. And I thank You for uh, the fact that You have spoken to many hearts in here today. Thank You for that, God. Thank You for meeting with us. Thank You for honoring Your Word. And we praise You and we bless You in Jesus' name. Amen.